It is my pleasure to introduce Ben Drews, <laughs> and he will be providing an economist perspective on the question of intergenerational justice. And he's very well suited to do this. He's a senior lecturer in economics at the School of Oriental and African Studies. Um, he did his doctorate in economics at the University College in London um, on issues surrounding social discounting of long-term projects. Prior to this, he worked um, in Africa uh, with the Overseas Development Institute and also on deforestation in China um, at Beijing University. His research now includes continued work on intergenerational equity as embodied in the social discount rate with applications to climate change as well as applied and, and uh, theoretical work on the developmental role of payments for ecosystem for environmental services. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Um, what I'd like to talk about today, uh, it, well, the title of the, the um, presentation is Climate Change Investment. What is it worth for future generations? Now, what I want to do really is talk about the, um, the details of the approach that economists take to this question of, of um, whether or not we ought to invest in climate change mitigation. Um, there are, the, the kind of starting point for the talk is really that uh, you have to, in some senses, take for granted that climate change is a problem. Uh, the, 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 the talk works much better if you think that climate change is a problem, okay? <laughs> if you are a skeptic and you don't happen to believe that this is happening, then the discussion of intergenerational ethics um, can still work for you in this context, but climate change just becomes the, one of the best thought experiments that you could imagine in, on this issue. Okay? I don't want to get into that discussion particularly. This is why I'm getting it out of the way in the first few, first few minutes. Um, so let's have a look at the overview of, of what I want to talk about. First of all, just a brief um, kind of background to, to the problem, why we think that climate change is an, an ethical problem. Uh, then I want to get on to the economist's approach to this question and discuss in some detail the sort of ethical and moral assumptions or, or viewpoints that economists, that economists have taken when they've uh, looked at the issue of, of climate change investments. This brings us towards, um, well, there's an ethical discussion and a meta-ethical discussion. So we're going to talk, talk about the overarching ethical standpoint and then the um, different ethical decisions that have to be m made within that uh, overarching standpoint. This brings us to one of the chief um, controversies in this area, which, is, which uh, has been played out rec recently post the Stern review and can be characterised really as a, uh, a battle between prescriptive, normative approaches to the issue and descriptive approaches, which, which look at what's going on in the real world and how people actually behave uh, and trying to characterise the decisions on the basis of that. As uh, a sort of, uh, within that section, there'll be a sort of a, a quite um, self-indulgent reference to some of my own work on this, on this issue, um, provided we have enough time. Then I'll move on to some other issues which are, which are extremely important when it comes to the question of climate change investments and that is the, the, the fact that we're presented with extreme uncertainty with regard to the outcomes, possible outcomes 
And one aspect of that is that there is a, the potential for catastrophic changes in, uh, in well-being. So we're going to look at how economists have dealt with uh, some of these issues and how, in fact, this issue may, in fact, may trump some of the broader ethical discussions which have so far uh, been the basis of the, uh, um, the controversies. I'm going to finish with a discussion of other ethical approaches. So econo economists come from a very particular standpoint. This need not be the only ethical treatment of this issue of intergenerational equity. And then, in the end, it, uh, I'm going to try and conclude, but I'm really going to hope that you're going to help me with that uh, in some respect. OK, so let's crack on. Climate change, an ethical problem. <clears throat> Some people don't think it's an ethical problem, by the way. Some people think it's just a, a technical problem. So I, I imagine that the seminar that was just advertised concerning geoengineering and so on would treat this issue in a very different way, right? This as a technical problem. However, I think there are some inevitable ethical aspects to the, to the problem. It's been described variously as follows by, by the sort of main players in this, in this area of economics at the moment. The biggest externality of all time, by Stern, I think I'm paraphrasing there, uh, by Martin Weitzman, uh, the biggest exercise in applied Bayesian theory, which is slightly perplexing at the moment, but that's another description here. Uh, and by Gardner, the perfect moral storm. Now, what does all this really mean? In essence, what this means, is this is a global problem. Right? It's one of the few um, public policy problems which is, is truly global. It involves a great amount of uncertainty. We have very little idea um, <coughs> precisely what's going to happen in the future as a consequence of climate change. Likewise, we have uh, little understanding necessarily about whether or not we can do something about it and reverse what appear to be the, the trend. So there's a great deal of uncertainty involved in this problem as well. Hence the Bayesian theory comment, really. In order to analyse this in some tractable way, we are forced to, into a position where we have to attach probabilities to possible outcomes and so on. Right? So it's a big exercise in that subjective probability uh, assignment. And it's a serious test of our ethical theory. So this perfect moral storm idea, actually this is a quote from, from Nick Stern, this is a serious test of our ethical theory. What are the actual aspects of this perfect moral storm? Well, there are two sort of areas which uh, ethical theory um, can be applied to. First of all is the, the burden-sharing aspect of, of uh, climate change. So if we think there is a problem uh, and we know what to do about it, how should the costs be assigned between, uh, presently between the various players in the world? This is a, you know, a, a spatial problem. Uh, Everyone is affected by the behaviour of more or less everybody else. Um, the causes of climate change are very diffuse throughout the world. Uh, so there are issues here of responsibility, historical responsibility, uh, fairness in assigning the costs between developed and developing countries, and so on. This is one aspect of this perfect uh, moral storm. The aspect that I want to focus on really is the intergenerational justice and equity aspects. And, and the following issues make climate change clearly an, ethical, um, an area for ethical discussion, I, I believe. So the, the fundamental aspect from the perspective of economists is that if we're going to do something about this, the costs of 
dealing with climate change occur now, um, but the benefits are accrue much, much later. So because of the inertia within the climate system, if we release carbon dioxide now, it stays in the atmosphere for you know, 100, possibly 200 years. Some of it stays more or less forever. Um, what we do today affects people way in the future. Uh, so if we're going to do something about it, it's going to cost us now, and the benefits to reducing carbon uh, are going to accrue to future generations. Uh, 200, 400 years in the future. These are typical horizons of analysis for economists and climate scientists. And extremely uncertain, as I've said already. So the, the problem here is that we are making decisions now uh, for people who aren't around at the moment. And this, for me, means that the climate change issue is a, um, an unavoidable ethical aspect. We, have to, we are the guardians of our future generations. We have to decide now... Uh, precisely how to, how to um, guard their welfare, if you like. Okay, so the questions are, ought we to invest in climate change mitigation now? Uh, if so, how much should we be investing and when should this take place? Do we do it today, tomorrow, in the next 20 years? At what point do we do all of this? And these, these are the crucial questions that economists uh, would like to answer. The ethical question is, what is moral behaviour in this situation? And again, economists have a very particular view, approach to what is actually moral behaviour in this situation, by and large. So, the question economists are interested in answering in this context is, should we invest today um, or not? Is the trade-off worthwhile? Okay. Uh, we have to consider the costs of abatement, the costs of reducing our consumption today, and compare those to the benefits of um, a sort of maintained um, uh, climate stability in the future. All right? So there are clear questions. Um, economists really think about this as just a, a straightforward, well, it, conceptually at least, in, in terms of a straightforward investment problem. Are the costs today worth the benefits in the future? And clearly... The answer to that question depends very much on how much weight you place on the benefits that accrue uh, to future generations. And so the issue of, of intergenerational equity is usually captured in what's called the social discount rate. Okay, so the question then is, how do economists define this social discount rate? How do they define their measure of the weight that we should, we should put on future generations' well-being? Well, I'm just going to present it to you, uh, the, the way in which economists think about this problem. And uh, there's nothing new about this, it turns out. In fact, the basis for the for economists' approach to um, the question of climate change stems from a paper by, by Ramsey in 1928. I mean, his question was, how much should we save for future generations? And another way of thinking about that is how much capital, how much should we leave for future generations when we, when we die. And in his paper uh, in the Economic Journal in 1928, The Mathematical Theory of Saving, this is precisely the question he tried to answer. And he, he took a kind of typical economist's uh, approach. He asked the question, you know, given that we could invest and receive a rate of return on our investment in the future... 
what is the, um, the welfare maximizing stream of consumption that we could, that we could uh, obtain in this context? And he uses the, he's, he put down, he wrote, basically he wrote down his ethics in mathematical form here, uh, and he used a time separable utility, uh, or welfare function which depends on time separable utility, um, measuring the utility of, in, of individual generations at each point in time. So this is our U of C of T. And the welfare is determined by the utility. The utility is dependent on consumption. Okay? Now, you can think about consumption very generally. Um, economists since then have started to think about consumption as including um, a wide variety of different goods. Okay? But it's a very stylized representation of, this, of, uh, of what determines well-being. Now, what's crucial here is that we have a weight of, which determines how much utility at a given time t contributes to welfare, to the overall welfare um, of, uh, over the time period, over the infinite time period that's measured here. Okay? And this weight beta to the power t is essentially what is, uh, economists would call a shadow price. This tells you how much utility at a given point in time contributes to our overall measure of welfare, right? And this shadow price is determined by a parameter rho, which tells you how much this price is changing over time, right? And in fact, it tells you how much it's declining over time, right? Now, this is an example of a discount rate, rho. And it tells you really how much this price of utility is declining as we extend further and further into the future. And with rho greater than zero, we end up with less weight being placed on utility that accrues in the future compared to utility that accrues today. Okay? So the fundamental trade-off here is how do we maximise our welfare given that we obtain welfare from consumption but given that we can also defer consumption and retrieve a rate of return in the future. Okay? So this is a fundamental intertemporal trade-off. Now, how is the optimal path of consumption described by the, this, this model? What is the solution to all of this? Well, this is the so-called Ramsey rule. And this tells us that at each point in time, whether or not we should save depends on... Um, the rate of return that we could get to that, and basically the cost, uh, the, the cost of um, deferring consumption. So here we have the, the, the sort of return from saving, and here we have the, the cost of saving, right? And the cost of saving is the cost of deferred consumption, okay? So from this ethical standpoint, we end up with... Um, effectively uh, the, what's called the social rate of time preference, which tells us how the shadow price of consumption, not utility, is declining over time. So it tells you, more or less, it tells you something to, it tells you the weight that we should be putting on consumption that accrues at different points in time, okay? So this is our social discount rate, effectively. And it comes straight from the assumption of the, this ethical assumption uh, stated here. Okay? All right. Now, 
What are the aspects of this uh, social discount rate? Well, first of all, we have our row parameter here, right, which we discussed before, which tells you how the shadow price of utility is declining over time. Secondly, we have a term here, which is eta, which is, tells you something about the curvature of the utility function. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later on, but really this tells you about how much we dislike uh, differences in the level of consumption from one period to the, to the next. All right? And the last term here is growth. Now, what is the level of growth in the, in the economy? All right. So there are several reasons why we should place less weight on future consumption as a, according to this uh, particular uh, approach. The first reason is that in the future, consumption that occurs in the future gives us less utility because we're discounting utility, okay? Because as I said before, with rho greater than zero, the shadow price of utility is declining. It, it contributes less to welfare further in the future, right? So we're, this is one reason that we might place less weight on future welfare. Secondly, um, we might place less weight on consumption in the future because... We're going, to be, we're going to be richer in the future, okay? And with diminishing marginal utility, if we're richer in the future, a given unit of consumption is worth less, okay? So there are two reasons why we might place less weight on, on the welfare of future generations than we do on present generations, according to this, according to this model, okay? We're going to discuss this uh, in great detail as we go through, okay? Now, how would we use this information in a sort of cost-benefit analysis, generally speaking? Well, this is the social rate of time preference. It is, the, it is a measure of the social discount rate when costs and benefits are measured in terms of consumption. So we could imagine a project which has net benefits accruing over some time period, Right? Let's imagine, we could imagine this is a climate change mitigation project. And we could evaluate the net benefits over the time period using the discount uh, rate, the social rate of time preference. Okay? And if this turned out to have a positive net present value, that would mean that this project is contributing to welfare, and we'd accept this. This is the economist's approach to this, to this issue. Okay? So here we have it. The, this effectively is a, an ethical statement about how we might approach the issue of how much to save for future generations. And this is the essential apparatus that economists have used to address questions like uh, how do, ought we to invest in climate change mitigation. So let's now think about what the actual ethical structure of this approach uh, is. Well, it's essentially utilitarian. This is a classic utilitarian um, uh, background that uh, neoclassical economists uh, are generally associated with. What does that mean in particular? Well, it's consequential, right? We're evaluating whether or not we should invest in, in climate change mitigation on the basis of the consequences of climate change mitigation and the consequences of climate change, right? The outcomes. How, what does it do to our consumption? Okay. 
It's welfareist. So we evaluate these outcomes in terms of the welfare of the individuals at these different points in time. And the welfare is measured by this utility function, right? It's not the consumption per se that's valuable. It's the welfare that you derive from the, from the consumption, okay? So it's based on the idea of utility. How much well-being do you get from consuming various, uh, various um, goods and commodities and services? And it's additive, okay? So we um, are structuring it in terms of the consequences, the welfare of the consequences, and then we're adding up the number that we get from this utility function, right? So we're sort of being filled up with utility at some point in time, at different points in time. We're adding all of that up in some way, and it gives us a number, and we can use this metric to measure different investments, okay? So those, that's the essential ethical content of the, the Ramsey approach. There are other properties as well that this approach has. And um, first of all, it's you know, aggregated measures of well-being. Okay? So we've looked, we've seen that this is additively separable over time. And we've added up all of those utilities to give us a single number. Right? So we've aggregated over different generations. We've lost any of the information associated with those different generations. It's time separable, so consumption at one point in time is in, you know, it, it does not affect the utility at any other point in time, so you can discreetly consider each time period. And this normative approach that, that Ramsey took um, is useful in the sense that this, is, this means that we have time consistent behavior. So if we look at the solution to this problem at time t equals zero, and we, we have our optimal path of consumption, if we arrive at t equals 10, this generation would look at the consumption path and say, oh, yes, you from 0 to 10, those generations, they did the right thing, and we're going to follow the same path from now on. So it's, the path is optimal at any point in time, and the generations would not change their mind about what was optimal. So it has this useful normative property. Okay. Uh, and secondly, um, a paper by Pater Dasgupta, which is excellent on this, on this particular issue from 2005, shows that this actual uh, apparatus, the, these time-separable uh, utility, uh, intertemporal social welfare function, uh, can be motivated by other aspects as well. So there is an axiomatic approach whereby a preference relation over different types of consumption uh, adheres to certain axioms, it leads us towards a time-separable social welfare function. Similarly, it embodies, uh, as a special case, the Rawlsian-Maximin uh, solution. And the Rawlsian-Maximin means that social welfare would be determined by the, out the worst outcome across all the time periods that, uh, that, that we would analyse. Okay? Again, it's a, that would be a consequentialist and welfareist approach, but it wouldn't be an additive approach, so it's a slightly different uh, ethical structure. But under certain circumstances, it's embodied by the, the time-separable approach. Okay, so those are the ethical properties of the Ramsey approach. Um, staunchly utilitarian. Now, within that, there are other ethical decisions that have to be made. So the, uh, let's just quickly go back. The, the, um, this determines the a possible... Um, this is a property that all consumption paths that we think are optimal should behave 
to, uh, should have this property. But, of course, the nature of the consumption path det depends on these different attributes of the, uh, of the problem. And so the meta-ethical discussion really concerns those, those parameters. And you've probably been scratching your head a little bit about, um, about why we want to, dis you know, why we ought to put less weight on utility in the future and, and so on. Um, well, let's get to that discussion now. So there's a meta-ethical discussion to be had. Now, how is this used uh, in applied cost-benefit analysis? Well, the idea is that um, this very same approach is used for project appraisal for short-term, medium-term projects. Okay? And the idea is that we're looking at very small deviations away from some, some optimal path. Okay? So small projects which don't affect the economy as a whole. And what happens is the discount rate is, is determined by, usually by some observable rate of return, like a market rate of interest, or, or we consider um, uh, some other measures of social rate of time preference. There are the usual corrections and so on for distortions to the economy. Um, this uh, condition is, is a sort of a condition which has been shown to hold in perfectly competitive markets, and so the normative Ramsey model then is used in, in a sort of a descriptive way uh, to describe the economy. And for that reason, observable rates of interest are often used in project appraisal for, for short-term projects and so on, with various corrections for distortions. If you're interested in this aspect of it all, Lint 1982 has the best summary of, of, the, of this issue. Okay, that's for small projects. Climate change, of course, is a particular problem. And when we come to the issue of talking about very long-term problems, then these issues of normative versus um, positive, uh, prescriptive versus descriptive approaches become extremely important uh, debates within, the, within the, um, the, the discipline. Secondly, we're talking about non-marginal changes. When we think about climate change investment, we're not thinking about small deviations from the current path of consumption. We're actually considering vastly different paths of consumption. So we're considering the welfare along one path of consumption compared to perhaps another ra radically different path of consumption. And each path would have its own discount rate. So this introduces another problem into uh, to the analysis of climate change. Okay. Now in particular, it makes the, the need for the ethical raw material of the Ramsey rule extremely important. So in order to uh, characterize the appropriate discount rate, we need to have some rationale, some way of determining the parameters rho and eta based on certain ethical or uh, normative, or in some cases positive, descriptive um, procedures. And in fact, it's this normative versus positive aspect of the discounting issue which has really uh, caused the most um, debate in recent in recent years concerning uh, climate change. So let's now think about how the social discount rate can be determined and what the rationales are for these separate parts of the, uh, of the discount rate. Now, first of all, let's think about the, the rate of pure time preference, rho. Okay, now this, 
there are normative views on this and there are um, positive, descriptive views on, on this. So let's first consider the normative. There is a, a group of, uh, there is a school of thought, I, I suppose you could describe it as, uh, which believes that, that rho ought to be zero. Uh, they take a normative stance on this. And what, in practical terms, what does this mean? It means that when we're undertaking our welfare analysis of a particular project, we ought not to be putting less weight on future generations' welfare than on our own. Okay? We're talking about the utility that future generations have. Okay? Now, this has a rich tradition, uh, this view. Ramsey himself, in his 20, 1928 paper, described it as ethically indefensible to have um, a positive, uh, um, to, to reduce the weight on the utility of future generations. He, he described it as a lack of imagination to think about things in those terms. Pigou in 1932, who I believe was Ramsey's student, um, he described it as a defective telescopic faculty. To put less weight on future generations' welfare uh, is, is short-sighted. It's myopic behaviour. Harrod in 1948, and these are, you know, these are seriously big names in, 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 in economics, describe this as a polite term for opacity, a conquest of reason by passion. Uh, so that people have very strong theor uh, feelings about this, this issue. Uh, Solo, slightly different view on, on this issue. He sort of treats all of these pre his predecessors as, um, as issuing some sort of... Um, uh, ethical diktat, if you like. And so he says, well, in solemn conclave assembled, we ought to, we ought to go about the analysis of intergenerational equity in this, in this way. So you, there's a certain amount of scepticism there. But more recently, post-Stern Review, uh, post the uh, controversial uh, choices that were made in the Stern Review, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, um, Quiggins, who was more or less in favour of Stern's, uh, Stern's review, said that high, a high row is, is more or less equivalent to saying that the future generations to go to, can go to hell for all, for all we care. So this ethical parameter is clearly stoking up quite a lot of feeling among, among economists. And, and the reason being is that it is actually crucial in determining what we ought to do as economists. Okay. Now, there are different views on what, on what this parameter should be and, and uh, whether or not we ought to uh, treat future, generational, future generations' utility in a different way to our own. Others in the school that think it should be greater than zero, there is another normative school of thought on this issue. Uh, firstly, there's a sort of the axiomatic outcome from Koopmans and, and Diamond. Now, it turns out that the same axioms which... Um, that sort of validate Ramsey's intertemporal social welfare function, this additively separable approach, uh, also imply that for a social welfare ordering to exist, that we should have that there would be a positive um, uh, rate of pure time preference. Okay, doesn't say how much it should be, but it, that it should be non-zero and positive. David Pierce, who uh, incidentally is my supervisor of my PhD, uh, and David Ulf wrote a paper in 1995 in which they tried to define what the discount rate should be for the UK government. 
And their view is that, again, there are some arguments for having rho greater than zero, that you, should, you could treat different generations differently if the resources that they have are, are different, if they differ in some other way. So if there's positive economic growth and future generations are much richer, then that's an argument for weighing their welfare slightly less than our own. Okay? This is really implied in their discussion. At no point do they actually say that, but if you read their paper, this is what they imply. And then lastly, there's the idea of agent relative ethics, which, uh, which uh, in a paper by Beckerman and uh, Wilfred Beckerman, who's from Balliol College, or was, um, and Cameron Hepburn, who argue that, in fact, we do behave this way. We do put more weight on... Um, people who are closer to us in terms of family and so on uh, within a given point in time, and also in terms of our descendants as well. So in a sense, this is a, a, an ethical argument for putting lower weight on future generations. Again, I think this is more Beckerman's view than Hepburn, Hepburn's, by the way. No, I know Cameron Hepburn pretty well. And... But the arguments are there, and there's a, a sound body of ethical thought which suggests that this might be the appropriate way to go about things. And then, of course, moving on from the normative, there is the positivist side. So Nordhaus, for instance, he thinks this is a calibration exercise. We should calibrate this parameter so that uh, more or less we can mimic what we see in terms of market interest rates in the economy at the moment. All right? So there's no real ethical... Um, uh, attachment to this um, parameter, we should just be looking at what we see in the markets. Okay? And lastly, there's the hazard rate idea. Now, this seems compelling as a, an argument for putting less weight on future generations' welfare, and it comes from the idea that uh, some people argue it's the risk of death for individuals, okay? but more recently, it's really the risk of extinction. If we're not around, if the human race is not around in 10 years' time, it seems like a reasonable thing to say that we ought not to be investing huge amounts of money for generations which are 200 years hence. Okay? So this introduces a sort of hazard rate argument for positive row. And in fact, Martin Rees, the astronomer royal, in his book, um, what's it called, the book? The final century, that's the one. Thank you very much. He gives our chances 50-50 of making it out through the next 100 years, which is quite an alarming uh, statistic, right? Uh, and the Stern Review took a very similar approach and put Rho at 0.1%, which, which uh, slightly better odds, 10% chance of uh, extinction in the, next, uh, in the next 100 years. Okay? So Rees argues because of, you know, Hadron Collider type things and other sort of experiments that are going on, bioterrorism. Uh, there are a whole bunch of extremely depressing um, contexts that he talks about in his book. It's an excellent book, and I, I thoroughly recommend you, you read it, but it's not uh, laugh a minute. So there are some arguments. This is the meta-ethical discussion for why we should treat different generations differently or, or not, as the case may be. When it comes to the elasticity of marginal utility, this parameter eta, well, as I said, this sort of measures, in a sense, the curvature of our, of our um, utility function as it enters into the social welfare function. So it sort of tells you how much additional consumption, uh, uh, how the, the um, marginal utility declines as consumption increases. Okay? But in this context, it actually has many different um, 
many different uh, concepts uh, captured within this one parameter. And this is really a consequence of the normative, time-separable uh, social welfare function that, that uh, Ramsey uses. Um, so it captures the idea that we're averse to consumption smoothing. I mean, that we are averse to vast differences in consumption. It captures the fact that we are um, averse to differences in income, uh, both within time periods and across time periods. Uh, but it also captures our risk aversion as well. So what it's saying is that um, if you have a given difference in income, then we treat that similarly if that's between two people at one point in time, between two different time periods for a given individual, or between two different states of the world. If the income differences are the same, we treat those in exactly the same way in our welfare analysis. Now, this might not be a very descriptive view of the world in the sense that probably my preferences for consumption smoothing have virtually nothing to do with my preferences for risk aversion, but the normative uh, ethical approach that, that Ramsey takes with its uh, nice properties of time consistency and so on imply that this is how we ought to behave. Okay. So that's, that's a tricky issue. However, in terms of trying to find out what this parameter should be, this gives us sort of three strategies that we could use in order to uh, estimate what, what society thinks this parameter should be. So again, there are positive versus normative and sort of democratic ways of going about this. We could use socially revealed preferences. Now, as I say, this, it reflects inter and intra-temporal uh, inequality aversion. So we can re reveal our inequality aversion through looking at our tax schedules. The progressivity of these tax schedules will reveal in some way how society, how averse society is to inequality of, within uh, a time period. So Evans and Caesar, the, this, these guys I think are at the Oxford Business School. I, I've written a paper recently on this as well. Um, you could look at individual revealed preferences. So some people do experiments on people's risk aversion and see, you know, how averse are you to risk? And then they back out the parameter eta for, for that. And that's one way of doing it, okay? And then lastly, you could ask people, okay? You, should, uh, you could ask people to engage in um, a thought experiment. So what sort of inequalities do you think are acceptable within society? Or let's play a game. Do you think this transfer from a rich to poor is, is, a, is a good one? Is this an acceptable transfer? And from such experiments, you can sort of derive a, a measure of inequality aversion. So within this sort of meta-ethical discussion, you, you, there are all these different ways of trying to estimate the ethical raw material of the... Um, of the Ramsey rule and of the social discount rate, which tell us something about how we would weigh uh, future generations. Now, so the higher this parameter eta, basically the less weight we would put on future generational future generations um, consumption. Right. So. So that's, some, those are part, that's the meta-ethical discussion concerning the Ramsey approach. Now, the last parameter, of course, is growth, yeah, the G parameter. And, of course, often in, in sort of a, when we're looking at small projects, people assume a, a sort of a, a trend of 1% or whatever. Sometimes you can adapt it to include the variability of growth. But 
Pater Dasgupta, uh, I mean, he's always been development-oriented in his analysis of, uh, of economics. Uh, he looks at de developing country experience, and many of them have had negative growth. And so what this would imply is that you, it could imply a negative discount rate uh, that should be applied in those, in those areas. Why? Because they're going to be poorer. If they're poorer, their marginal utility is higher uh, in the future. If the marginal utility is higher in the future, that means we would value their contribution to intertemporal social welfare more. Okay? So he, those are some of, the, some of the arguments. But remember, we are thinking about non-marginal changes when we're thinking about climate change. Not thinking about um, marginal projects moving away from some given path of consumption. We're looking at radically different paths of consumption. And so, in fact, G is an endogenous parameter here. Growth will be very different along a non-climate uh, change path compared to a, a climate change path. And so some of the marginal analysis, which is at the root of Ramsey's approach, need not uh, necessarily apply. Right. So the, the, we now have a, uh, an idea of what the overarching ethical structure of economic thought is, what the meta-ethical discussion within that um, uh, is all about, some of the ethical decisions that have to be made. What are the consequences of social discounting? Well, it's a big problem, and this has actually had people scratching their heads for a while. So if we think about what the social discount rates that governments actually use. The UK Treasury uses a social rate of time preference of 3.5% based on estimates of these various parameters. The US government, 4%. The multilaterals, World Bank, uh, European Bank of Reconstruction, and so on, use values of around 5%. And which is fine if you're thinking about short-term projects. But when you're thinking about intergenerational projects, this is extremely difficult because what you're saying in a cost-benefit analysis is that you're putting it basically zero weight on any costs and benefits which accrue in 100 years' time. Right? So it has extremely deleterious effects on the present value of future welfare. If you use these, if you use these um, uh, a constant uh, discount rate. And of course, the higher the discount rate, the lower the weight you place on future, future generations' welfare. So what this meant was that the early analyses of climate change were basically saying, well, let's not do much because the, actually that doesn't really contribute much to our, into our social welfare function. But for a long time now, people have been saying things like this, that, that Weizmann, for instance, in 98, saying, well, I've got this nagging feeling that there's something wrong here. There's something wrong with this, uh, this analysis. Okay, so one solution to this is to say, okay, imagine the, the discount rate is uncertain. Now, uh, what that means is, following Jensen's inequality, is that if this is our discount factor, we, we've got an uncertain discount rate, uh, let's take the certainty equivalent discount rate, which is equal to this in expectation. If you back this out, it means that, well, this discount factor is higher than, the, the, than would be using the expected value of the discount rate. What that means is that the certainty equivalent rate, when the <coughs> discount rate is uncertain, is less. That's one thing. So you would use a lower discount rate. One step further, the further you go into the future, the lower the discount rate should be. And 
so this has been a very powerful concept, actually, within the world of discounting, um, because it means that you're placing sort of more and more weight on future generations' well-being than you would be if you used a constant discount rate. So it's a theoretically sort of sound argument for, for uh, discounting approaches which seem to be fairer, right? Seem to be fairer, less unequal. Okay, so the, the key question is how to characterise uncertainty in a discount rate. Now, uh, several ways of doing this. You can look at historical data, see what the uncertainties were, and then do your calculation that way. Newell and Pizer, I've got a paper on this in Journal of Applied Econometrics. Fine. Expert opinion, you could, uh, Weizmann in his gamma discounting paper asked 2,000 PhD economists, what is the discount rate that we should use? And then he used the sample distribution as a measure of uncertainty of the discount rate and uh, gave us a schedule of declining discount rates. Now these have their own problems but this was a remarkably powerful concept and now has been more or less straight away embodied in, in UK um, policy on cost-benefit analysis as well as uh, by the French government as well. They now have declining discount schedules for long-term projects in their, in their advice for cost-benefit analysis. It's a very powerful argument. The trouble is the empirics are extremely uh, sensitive to the treatment of historical data and also sensitive to the nature, if you're looking at expert opinion, they're very sensitive to the nature of uh, responses. When, when Weizmann's experts responded, were they um, responding um, nor in a normative way? Were they thinking, well, this is how we ought to do it? Or were they saying, oh, this is my best prediction of the market interest rate for the next 200 years? It, those differences are crucial because they, t they, they determine how you should weight your experts in determining your overall average here. If you think it's a prediction of the future, then you should use an aver the average, which gives you much less uncertainty. So there are some issues there, but this really... Um, really makes a difference. So if we think about this as a measure of the damages of, of carbon over a 400-year time period, and we take the present value of these damages, with a conventional 3.5% discount rate, it's, you get a carbon value of $6.50. Uh, but with declining discount rates, it, it's, it goes up to $16. $16. Okay. So... The key questions, it seems to me, are now between whether we should use... How should we ca characterise this discount rate? Should it be prescriptive or descriptive? And in recent years, we've had a, a great example of the controversy that, that this has embodied in the Stern Review. So we ca I can present two approaches, one which is prescriptive, normative, what we ought to do sort of thing, versus descriptive, what we are doing currently. Um, as ways of characterising the discount rate. The Stern Review took the following view. It was a very normative, a normative view. First of all, they assumed that Rho ought to be zero for ethical reasons, following Ramsey and so on. So we ought not to place a different weight on future, generational, uh, future generations' uh, well-being. But they did accept that the ha hazard rate was an important aspect of discounting. So if there's a, a 1 in 100 chance of extinction, then this is a good reason to put less weight on future generations' well-being. They might not be here, is the argument. And then lastly, they chose ITER on the basis of empirical observations. 
right? So this is a, a measure of how averse we are to inequality, and eta equals one says that someone with twice the income has half the marginal utility, right? So we value their utility half as much. Okay, so that's, that's the extent of inequality aversion embodied there. And what they ended up with was an average discount rate of about 1.4% for, for their central case in the analysis of climate change investments. What was the recommendation there? Well, urgent action required now. The costs of climate change are extremely large. Okay? So this is one perspective on the climate change issue. Nordhaus, on the other hand, undertook a very similar um, economic analysis of climate change investments. Uh, and his view was more descriptive, a descriptive approach. So the discount rate should be determined by what we observe in practice, what the actual trade-offs are uh, that we observe in the marketplace, right? So, and he, uh, he basically said that our investments should be compared to the observed rate of return on equities uh, in the market, right? Now, this has a very different effect. So, historically, the return on equities, uh, he thought, was between 5 and 6%. And with growth at 1.5%, this leads to an empirical estimate of eta equals 2, which is a much, more, a much higher value, which implies sort of low, a higher discount rate. And then calibrated back the, the value of rho to being between 2 and 3%. And it's this value of 2 and 3% that Quiggin was talking about when he said that this basically means that we don't give a damn about future generations. So no, it's no surprise that this different perspective on what the discount rate ought to be led to a very different kind of recommendation on what we should do in terms of climate change. His recommendation was that we should have a policy ramp. We start slow, Right? We, we should invest now in building up our natural capital base rather than in, in climate change um, uh, mitigation. And then gradually over time, as the costs of climate change increase, climate change mitigation becomes more um, uh, viable. Uh, we should start our mitigation in the future. And the costs of climate change were much, much smaller because he was putting much less weight on those future generations as a consequence of these meta-ethical assumptions. Okay. So it's, it, this was obviously con controversial. Two very different outcomes based on very different approaches to the discounting issue. And there was something of a, of a uh, sort of, a, well, a very lively debate took place. Let's put it that way. And Nordhaus's comments on Stern were, were extremely, uh, uh, I don't know, I thought they were slightly out of order, I thought, but um, that's just my view. So he accused uh, Stern as stoking the dying embers of the British Empire. And why did he, why did he assume that? Why, why did he make that comment, rather? Well, because Stern was, he, in his view, Stern was making a sort of a, a central normative stance on what everybody ought to be doing, okay? This was not referential to anything, that, any kind of consensus among the people whom would be affected by uh, climate change investments. It's just a central ethical stance on the intergenerational equity issue. So he called this, uh, he referred to... A, what Sen described as government house utilitarianism, right? Where the government basically decides, you know, what should be done. And this inevitably has some 
um, uh, well, it affects the rights, the rights of the populace in sort of adverse ways in some senses. So that was quite a strong statement. Weizmann also, I mean, these are just some of the commentators on it. Weizmann, who is who, um, uh, actually quite a hero of mine in many respects, he thought the stern parameters were all rather suspect and that the approach was, was, was basically wrong. But overall, he said it was right for the wrong reasons. And we'll come to that in a second. And Dasgupta, part of Dasgupta, uh, on Stern, he said this was an ethical fudge, right? Precisely because of the meta-ethical discussion that, that I've just talked about here. The reason being that he chose the parameter uh, rho, the pure rate of time preference, for ethical reasons, but then chose the parameter eta on the basis of some description of how people actually behave. So he's mixing up a normative and a positive um, methodology, if you like, in determining the social discount rate. Beyond that, he said that eta should be higher. He thought that eta equals one reflects very limited aversion to inequality in society, and he thought that this should be higher. Okay? On Nordhaus, of course, uh, he has something to say about Nordhaus as well, he described this as interesting, democratic. This is not a wholesale a backing of Nordhaus's approach, clearly. Um, but there's something in this idea of it being democratic, i.e. Uh, the parameters were based on um, what emerges in the market. And who determines what emerges in the market? Well, we do, in a sense. So in that sense, it was, it's extremely democratic, in the sense that this is what demand and supply, us as agents, have determined within the marketplace as being the proper rate of intertemporal trade-off. So there are many different discussions here to be had. In fact, it makes a huge difference. So if we look at this diagram here, this is about carbon control, the control rate. And this is the control rate of carbon that Nordhaus suggests, the, the bold line here. And this is what Stern suggests much higher levels of control, a reduction of 50% compared to like uh, 15 for Nordhaus. In terms of the, um, the carbon price, you know, what policy should be implemented in order to, to, to reduce uh, carbon in this way? Well, for Stern, the price shoots up immediately to $250 more or less. For Nordhaus, it's, it's way down here at 20, uh, $20. So massive differences in the practical implications of these different views on intergenerational equity. What is Stern's response here? Well, Stern had a number of different responses, and I think he defended himself way I'm, uh, well. I think I'm convinced by his arguments, to be honest with you. There are a number of different arguments. First of all, the social discount rate is endogenous. The discount rate depends on the, on the scenarios that you're looking at. And there are many different scenarios which, can, uh, which are possible um, when we consider climate change. We could have extremely bad climate change with very low growth. We could have moderate climate change and so on. And each one of these paths has its own discount rate. So we should appraise these different paths uh, in, their own, in, in their own right. This is not what Nordhaus was doing. Nordhaus is looking at one particular discount rate in the market today, which is really just representative of one particular growth path, the one that we happen to be on at the moment. So in that sense, 
there's a conceptual problem with Nordhaus's uh, approach. Secondly, market rates are extremely problematic from an ethical perspective as well. So, okay, they reflect the current path of growth. They reflect the private decisions that we have all made in the marketplace concerning savings, concerning investments, and so on, right? And it could be that we make those decisions with the wrong hat on. Do we go into the market and undertake our savings decisions with our intergenerational equity hat on? We most probably do not. We probably have some other uh, maxims that we're using in that context. Okay? We're not necessarily thinking ethically. So that would mean it's not necessarily the correct rate to use when we consider ethical problems like market, uh, like climate, uh, climate change. Markets fail. The private rate of return could well be positive in energy uh, investments, but the real social discount rate, the social rate of return, uh, did I just say negative? It could well be positive, but the social rate of return would be, could be negative because of externalities which do not appear in the market. It could be the, it, precisely climate change, but it could be other polluting activities and so on, meaning that the social rate of return is negative. And that would, markets do not reflect all of those external costs necessarily. Um, markets are overly influenced by the rich as well. So they usually reflect something, something of the average, which is affected of a, um, uh, more by the tails of the distribution of income. Okay? So this is not necessarily, although uh, Daskupter is probably right in describing it as extremely democratic in a sense, we're not all affecting the, the market rates in the same way. It might not be fair to think about that as being a, a, a nice, uh, a clear democratic view of our discount rate. And then Beckerman and Hepburn make the following point, which I think is also crucial. I mean, what other sort of ethical decisions are left to the market? Do we think about the death penalty in terms of, you know, should this be determined by, determined by our operations in the market? Abortion, other issues like this? If you believe it, climate change is a, a fundamentally ethical problem, then we probably ought not to leave it to the market to decide. And so this is another argument against Nordhaus's approach. I'm fairly convinced by, by those arguments, to be honest. What Nordhaus is trying to do is, effect, is, is point us towards the actual trade-offs in terms of rates of return that we see today, which is fair enough in some respects. But in terms of the ethical approach, I think it's probably wrong. So Stern concludes by saying it's a serious mistake to import some observed private rate of return uh, observed in the markets or an empirical estimate from outside into the analysis of, of climate change. Okay. Now, there are some other issues as well. Now, I, I'm sort of reluctant to put big quotes on on slides and so on. But there is another issue here as well. So should the democratic issue is clearly important, right? Should we leave it to us to decide what's going on? Do we, you know, do we think that we know exactly how uh, we should discount uh, intergenerational problems like climate change? That is, should we use the information in markets or even from our personal uh, uh, behavior um, to, to inform this? Sen disagrees. He says, if, an inform, if informed scrutiny by the public is central to any social evaluation, which he thinks it is, 
the implicit values have to be made more explicit rather than shielded from scrutiny in some spurious ground that they are part of an already available metric that society can immediately use without further ado. He's referring to market rates of interest there. It's an argument against using those. What's the alternative? What's at the other alternative extreme? Well, possibly Stern, who's decided from an ethical perspective, referring to Ramsey and Harrod and all of these heavyweights of economics which have gone before him. Before him. Well, this sounds... This is abhorrent to Dasgupta. He said it's all well and good for an ethicist to assume the high moral ground and issue instructions like some philosopher king or Whitehall Mandarin, but social ethics contain an irredeemably democratic element. So th there are problems with Stern's approach here, I, I expect. Should we leave it to the so-called experts? And the, the truth of the matter is probably lies somewhere in between. Okay. All right. Now I'm running out of time here. Um, I've probably overrun already. Uh, it's been an hour, I think. So I'm just wondering how to sum this up. I might miss out the catastrophic risk stuff and just go on to the alternative eth ethical um, perspectives. Would that offend anybody? Well, only that you said it was a... It could trump everything. <laughs> All right, you asked for it. <laughs> okay, so... Look, we've discussed some of the ethical issues. We'll come back to that in a second. One of the key problems with, with climate change is that there are great uncertainties. We don't know exactly what the, what the consequences will be. We don't know exactly what the impact of any mitigation strategy will be today. So um, what Dietz uh, et al, and Simon Dietz was a member of the Stern panel, and he was uh, intrinsically involved in the, in the analysis that Stern did, and has written extensively on this issue since. And his papers are extremely readable and, and, uh, and eloquent. I, I recommend them. But one of the analyses that they did was they looked at um, the role of uh, catastrophic risk. Now, Stern's model of climate and, and economy did actually contain the possibility of extremely adverse, catastrophic uh, climate change. And this was embodied in their estimate. Uh, the DICE model of Nordhaus also includes these possibilities as well. And what he did was he did an analysis of the, uh, of the um, cost of remaining business as usual on the basis of different measures of pure time preference, which is one of the ethical parameters, and the diff different measures of the parameter eta. Now remember, eta reflects risk aversion as well as consumption smoothing. And in this high climate scenario, which is where catastrophic risk enters into the, the calculus, the risks are increased considerably. And of course, as um, our risk aversion parameter increases, this means that the cost of, of uh, doing nothing uh, could increase. But there are two effects going on. First of all, um, the consumption smoothing effect, we, we put less weight on the future, which is the, uh, the, the, uh, what we've been talking about so far. But as the risks increase, the, our risk aversion increases, the costs begin to rise. So what this is saying is that the sort of simple um, analysis of these parameters, that high eta means high discount rate, um, means low cost of climate change, is not, is not strictly true. If you include catastrophic risk in there, high risk aversion becomes the predominant issue here. Right? 
So it's not all about the discount rate is, is, the, is the answer to all of this. It's also to do with risk aversion and also to do with how we model catastrophic risk. Okay. Notice that row is still important, though. So there are, still is some role for ethical discussion in this sense. Now, Weizmann's dismal theorem is, a, is a, an analysis of fat-tailed distributions, i.e. he's saying look, what, what happens when we look at um, low-probability catastrophic events and include those into the analysis of climate change. Well, um, his dismal theorem is basically the following thing. He says, imagine utility looks like this. We have a risk aversion parameter, eta, and a distribution of consumption, uh, probability distribution, with a fat tail, i.e. it has a slightly fatter tail uh, in relation to these very low adverse <coughs> outcomes. Well, if that is the case, if this, then our, our um, conditional utility, which is the utility at C times the probability of realising this utility, is equal to this parameter here, uh, this function here, which you don't really have to take too much, pay too much attention to, but the point is that as C goes to zero, our consumption goes to zero, i.e. we approach some sort of catastrophe, what happens there is that utility goes to minus infinity. You can't evaluate it. So what he's saying is that once you start introducing the potential for catastrophic risks into the simple framework that we've been looking at already, we end up with something that we simply cannot evaluate. He's saying that cost-benefit analysis that economists are using basically doesn't work when you start looking at catastrophic risks. So we should think about some other way of dealing with these things. Okay? So that's his dismal theorem. Dismal for economists in the dismal science. That's basically what he's saying. Okay, now, I promise, this is the last five minutes, I promise, and, uh, and then we'll open it up to discussion. Now, we've talked about a utilitarian, a staunchly utilitarian approach to the, to the measurement of, to the assessment, the evaluation of climate change, but there are other ethical approaches. What's particular about the approach that we've looked at is that it's consequential. The hallmark of consequentialism is that it acknowledges the priority of the good over the right. And to put that in more sort of florid terms, it, uh, Beckerman and, and Parchek say it's quite likely that a cost-benefit analysis in ancient Rome of the spectacle of throwing Christians to the lions in the Colosseum would have come up with a positive result, which is to say that cost-benefit analysis the utilitarian approach, consequentialism, is not concerned about the, the actions themselves. It's only concerned about the consequences. And this could be problematic in these kind of extreme uh, uh, examples. So, and there are various other problems, but let's get on to the, to the other possible approaches here. We could think about climate change in, from a deontological perspective. Duties, the rightness and wrongness of actions, the rights that, that, we might, uh, that we might have. Future generations may have rights to stable climate, is the argument of, of Koenig. And we have a duty of care to maintain them. Um, we might have a moral obligation to assist future generations in the same way as we might uh, have a moral ob obligation to assist a child who's face down in a puddle in the street. 
It might not be our fault that they're in the street face down in a puddle, but we still would have a duty to help them. So in the same sense, we may have a duty to, to assist future generations. Um, we can think about um, other ethical reasons for helping future generations, which don't depend on rights. They depend on responsibility and vital interests. If we think that um, future generations ought to be compensated for things which aren't, for bad things that happen to them which aren't their fault, and, and if we think that there are vital interests, such as a minimum level of health and so on, then there's another argument for acting on climate change. There's the no harm principle. Uh, there's a legalist perspective. What would a reasonable man do in this situation? And some people have tried to import legal perspectives like this into the analysis of climate change. Then we have other issues concerning risk. Perhaps a principle, precautionary principle is useful here too. Again, Dietz et al., another paper from 2007, have a rather nice summary of many of these issues. Perhaps virtue is the way that we ought to go here. Now, whereas these sort of teleological approaches, um, utilitarianism, deontological approaches, are concerned with what we should do, virtue ethics is concerned with what, how should I behave, what sort of person should I be? And many moral philosophers have focused on this as being perhaps the most important thing, that the current set of values that we have, which were developed in much more sort of localised uh, societies and so on, simply aren't the correct values to be, or aren't sufficient for us to deal with these global and intertemporal problems that, that climate change presents us with. So uh, Jameson, in his article that says when utilitarians should be virtue theorists, su suggests that we should develop 20th century, 21st century virtues like humility, courage, moderation, simplicity, conservatism. Um, that we should not be complacent, we should evaluate consequences alongside that. Now that sounds, to an economist, that sounds like extremely wishful thinking. But I do think, uh, given surveys that we see of people's preferences over climate change, you, you ask, ask uh, representative surveys of people's willingness to trade off consumption now for, for benefits in the long-term future, and boy, they're not willing to do it, generally speaking. So po there is possibly an argument here about the set of values that we have uh, not being up to the, the job. With a at the conclusion. And it's not much of a conclusion, to be honest with you. Uh, much of what I've presented is work from people who are working at the frontier of the theory and, and of climate change uh, economics. And I personally, to be quite honest with you, I'm just sort of nibbling away at the edges trying to see what they're, what they're up to. But I do agree with, with Dasgupta when he says we would be foolhardy to adhere doggedly to some ethical principle and ignore the consequences of that principle. So what I'm saying is there is room here for the economic approach to climate change, that we need to at least do our best to evaluate the consequences regardless of the principles that we think are useful to apply there. Okay? The ethics of uncertainty are is an area which I think is extremely important given the nature of the problem and the, the fact that uncertainty appears to be, in, in many cases, trump any of the ethical discussion that we have uh, concerning the utilitarian approach. What's in it? Uh, 
democratic approach, I'm still not sure about this balance between the experts, how much we should rely on the export, experts, compared to how much we get information from us or, and how we do that. I think that's a crucial question and it's extremely dif difficult. What's in it for the future, which is the title of, the, of this seminar? Well, I think maybe this is precisely the question that we should be asking. There is a chance that the Elder members of our society are precisely the people that we should be talking to about this issue. We should perhaps, because one of the questions concerning climate change is, you know, imagine you arrive in the future and the climate is extremely unstable and, and adverse. What would people then think about our behaviour now? Well, the only people that we can talk to about such things are, are the elder members of society now. It might be well worthwhile asking those guys on, of their view of that particular type of problem. What should have been done in the past? Would they have changed things in the past? And perhaps we can get a handle on some of this ethical material in that way. I'll finish there. Uh, I'm sorry that I've gone on for slightly longer than I ought to have, um, but thank you for your attention anyhow. I'll open it to the floor. <laughs>